Hello, fiction is first. This is Ben Forstenzer. I am very happy to present to you the recording of the second house show uh, held March 11th in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, there were many acts. Uh, so what you're going to be hearing is um, Michael Patrick Flanagan Smith singing some songs, uh, Michelle Dwyer uh, reading a very short piece of mostly nonfiction, uh, Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson reading some short pieces of fiction, and then what you're not going to hear is m the live recording of my story. What you're going to hear is a studio recording of my story. My story, I read it too fast. And I would not subject you to that. So, um, other than a few uh, snips and cuts to remove unnecessary voids of sound and interest, uh, you're going to hear almost everything as it was recorded that night. Um, it was a really beautiful night. And if you are in the Baltimore area, um, hopefully you will be able to make one of these house shows. We should have another one in 20. 16. Uh, since this house show, spring has fully sprung, and it's a very, it's a very beautiful scene out there. But uh, this was in the, the, the dregs of the winter, and uh, was a, a beautiful explosion of light and uh, love and, and community uh, to get out of that winter. So I hope that you enjoy what you hear. Uh, it was really enjoyable to record and uh, keep keep listening. Thank you. So it occurred to me recently that dentists are very underrepresented in, uh, in song. So I'm, tonight I figure I can, one of the things we can do tonight is we can set out to kind of correct that. So this song goes out to uh, Howard Silver BBS. <laughs> It's either the drill or it's the gun, oh Michael. 
how you want to get this little thing done. I said, Dennis, give me the drill and the gun. The drill's for me, the gun's for everyone else. I got the two big So uh, uh, it's good to see everyone. You all look wonderful. Everyone looks really delightful. And uh, there's some older friends here this evening I haven't seen in a while. And I was just telling, I've recently started playing some tunes that are among the first songs that I've ever written. And I was talking to Tara about this a little bit. Because it's interesting because it sort of puts you, it's like each song is... Song is is sort of like a has songs I think experience time differently than people experience time, and so a song exists in time when it's being played and when it's being listened to. But we kind of keep traveling, and so it's interesting when you play a song and that can actually sort of put you in these different time spaces as you play it. So this is one of the first songs I ever wrote. definitely out of tune when I wrote it, <laughs> but I'm not going for authenticity.
So I'm going to do just one more song, and then Michelle's going to get up and read it. Are you introducing people between stuff, then? I might, yeah. Well, that's definitive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so maybe Ben will introduce Michelle. Let's just see. Okay, yeah, so yes. So, I, you know, the last time I was here in Ben's house, I had just uh, broken up with someone who I was seeing, and we and we laid on the floor, and uh, and it was it was last seven week? days ago. It was seven days ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I mean it's crazy how time flies. Ah, <laughs> uh, one, uh, one of the things that well one of the things we we were talking. Um, was Ben reminded me of this song that I wrote that I don't know, I think I've played it out at some point, but it's been a long time, and so, uh, so I figured I'll give it a shot. There's a muscle in my chest beneath the left side of my breast going. I want to give it to you. It's been handed out before, three times, maybe four. Been broken, burned, and bruised, and I wanna give it to you. Oh, boom, boom, oh, boom, boom. And if I give it to you, I never wanna get it back again. There's a dream up in my eye, it's a little chunk of sky. Been raining there too long, wondering what went wrong with the muscle in my chest. Side of my breast going. I wanna give it to you. Oh, boom, boom, oh, boom, boom. And if I give it to you, well, I never wanna get it back again. Will you take my gift? Will you hold it close? Will you guard it now till you are? Rachel Ann Warren, who will be at the next Fictionist First reading, um, and she was interested in doing a podcast and kind enough to come and do one. We actually had a terrible technical glitch during our podcast, uh, where she'd done a beautiful recording and we were listening to it, we were having a great conversation, and uh, the computer died, completely, the sound card cooked. Um, and she came back three months later and finished the conversation, and we put it out. I guess it's not that interesting. It was sad. 
It was a sad story. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Dwyer. Well, I'm certainly glad I came back. I was like, ah, oh, this guy's going to forget all about me. But he was very kind and let me come back and finish up the story. Um, I have to say, your songs that you just sang, I totally related to because I, um, my wisdom teeth are coming in right now. And the dentist told me I have room to keep them, but it's very painful. So I'm having some toothache blues. <laughs> Hardcore. And I'm also, um, right, you said the... Uh, your breasts, you mentioned, your, the muscle under your chest, and your, I'm going to actually re read a story about wanting to get boobs when I was a kid. So, like, breasts and teeth, like, you really hit the nail on the head there. So, um, <laughs> so uh, my name's Michelle, and for the past year, I've been writing about middle school and elementary school a lot, hence why I was wanting to have boobs, and I'm going to read that story to you. Um, a few months ago, I wrote a zine diary notebook called Hair on Soap, and it's, um, I also write about middle school, and I have excerpts of my middle school diaries, like my actual handwriting and everything, and I have stickers in here for, um, I'm really into little girl ephemera, like I just, I always kept diaries as a kid, and I just love looking back at them, and I still keep diaries now, so I think that's why I've been writing a lot about my middle school and elementary school experiences. So this is my story for tonight. It's called Stalling Womanhood. By the time I reached fifth grade, it was in vogue to wear baggy pants that everyone referred to as Django's. This let me off the hook when I didn't want people to catch a glimpse of the peach fuzz my mom refused to let me shave. Through whispers in the bathroom, it was evident that most of the girls in my grade had started using razors with names that made them sound like goddesses. If you leaned your head under the bathroom stall just so, you could see Adidas shell-topped shoes attached to an endless parade of smooth ankles. These ankles had been haphazardly swiped with pink razors known as Venus and intuition. In health class, we learned that our bodies would be changing. There had been an entire puppet show dedicated to the new feelings we would be feeling and what lady cramps were. <laughs> Our teacher had individually taken each of us out in the hallway to explain the merits of antiperspirant. Childhood only happens once in your life, so you should stop and smell the roses, but that doesn't mean the roses want to stop and smell you. <laughs> There were stacks of pamphlets on our up-and-coming menstrual cycles, and I found them to be most useful in situations when I was bored in class and wanted to get to my beloved bathroom stall. I would shoot my arm up like the growth spurt we were all anticipating and wave my hand wildly. Excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. It's an emergency. We were taught the top secret code, emergency, during one of the puppet shows. <laughs> If one of you girls feels like you might be turned into a woman, woman right there in the middle of class, just tell your teacher you're having an emergency. It is important that you hurry to the nearest restroom and be sure to bring along a sanitary napkin just in case. I knew I wasn't turning into a woman anytime soon. I just found it more educational to hide out in the bathroom, listening closely to the conversations by the sink. There was talk about tampon strings that didn't resemble anything like what made the sex education marionettes dance about. My legs seemed to be fuzzy only from the sheer fact that I was a mammal. 
I long to be a hairy beast woman who split Venus razors into smithereens when my mom finally caved and begged me to use them. <laughs> but my body was small and uneventful. I wasn't scared about all the things our teachers warned us about, just anxious to finally have my turn. These were matters of the heart at stake and tiny swollen lumps that were yearning to blossom just outside of my rib cage. Out of all the health classes our parents had to sign permission slips for, you would have thought that at least one would have been dedicated just to a segment on boobs. But no one talked about the good stuff. No one talked about sexy cleavage and Victoria's Secret. I had spent a decent amount of time pushing the limited flesh on my chest together, hoping that an attractive mound would form. I suddenly hinted to my mom that I wanted a bra by cutting out the Sunday newspaper advertisements and scattering them in places she would likely find them. I used safety scissors to trim along the curvy women in the J.C. Penney ads and then positioned them on my mother's nightstand next to a glass of water from the night before. <laughs> the same girls that had the parental-approved privilege of sleek legs obviously got bras before I did. I tried to see through their shirts the way I could peek at them in the cracks of the bathroom stall, but it just wasn't the same. I fantasized about lacy things cupped ever so delicately and straps that made a healthy sound when you tugged at them. At least that was what I one day wanted for myself. It would be a few years before I was even in the same league as these ladies, but until it was my turn, I could make up every detail of how I hoped it would be. Thank you. <laughs> Falling down 
the end of every day Tell every mountain it's gonna blow away Because a prodigal son is arriving a day too Christmas, I recorded a Christmas song with uh, this gentleman, Sarth, over here. We had a minor hit with it in uh, the northern part of southern Ukraine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Sarth wrote the song, he produced it. Uh, I'm not religious, I just believe in Christmas. Um, <laughs> and I think the reason you asked me to sing it was because of this tune that I'm going to do right now.
Well, that part is true, and this other part is also true. Cause I loved you more than I've ever loved a woman. drink all the time it's because I'm thirsty but I could tell you about my brother how he became my hero I could tell you about my mother she works overtime that part is true and this other part is also true I loved you more than I've ever loved a woman well that part is true and this other part is also true know my heart because it's where you reside you know my arms you can rest there anytime all right now Okay, so uh, Elizabeth Evans Dickinson is going to come up and read. Um, Elizabeth was the second person I recorded for the podcast. Um, and three out of four, for whatever reason, of those podcasts, I think, are about, are all about, they're about, they're all, yeah, they're about death. And they're nonfiction. They're all. They're all. The, the podcast is called Fiction is First, but all the st- but all the story views are nonfiction. It's cool. Don't worry about it. So um, Elizabeth is an accomplished writer. She's uh, well published in magazines and other publications. Are you working? Are you working a memoir as well? I am. Yes, but I'm reading fiction. Uh, that's great. It's very exciting. So excellent. So Elizabeth is going to come up and lay some beautiful fiction on us. So welcome up. On you. Thank you, Ben, and thanks, Renee. You guys, this is this is such a beautiful room. Like, what a what a beautiful room. Um, so I have two speeds for fiction. I write short fiction, and I either write really long short fiction or I write flash. So I decided rather than read an excerpt, I would just read you a couple of short pieces. So these are a few pieces that have um, published in the last year or two. Um, And this first one is the only one I've ever written in second person. So there's that. Okay. (laughs) Yay. And it's in iambic pentameter. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So this was in a magazine called Pank. It's called A Modern Girl's Guide to Childbirth. (laughs) Who said woo? (laughs) Sorry. Sorry in advance. Okay. You will be deep in the throes of labor when your husband deposits you at the entrance of a downtown hospital. An attendant, a man whose name you'll never know, will wheel you to the 11th floor while your husband parks. If this were Greece, say 430 BC, two midwives would have come to your home instead. They would scour your bedroom for knots, knots being unlucky before parting the sea of women around your bed to coax you to a small birthing stool and whisper guidance in your ear. If your labor had happened in 17th century China, a Taoist priest would have done the whispering, his prayers echoed by the women attending you. 
Your hospital room is hygienic and bright, and the EKG hides behind faux oak cabinets. Wall-mounted dispensers wheeze disinfectant gel. Forceps, scissors, and clamps line a metal tray. A window faces west so that your view is not the boats in the harbor, but the hills of the historic Greenmount Cemetery where you like to walk. In your chart is the birth plan that you carefully handwrote and which the nurses and the doctors will ignore because they know it is impossible to plan the trajectory of a birth, let alone a life, and the sooner you learn this, the saner you will be. If this were 1800s France, the midwife would warm her hands in almond oil after lining your bed with boxes of powdered cumin and myrrh meant to dust the baby and protect her from evil spirits. Your mother will be banned from the delivery room, the consensus being that she is the ultimate source of evil. <laughs> there will be a grab bar, an inflated ball, and a tub, and you will try each in a circuit, and your husband will ask if the water helps, and you will say, I'm in labor, now I'm wet, and I'm in labor, and they will call for a man who cleanses your back with iodine and inserts a thread-thin catheter that streams up a dural. There will be a head nurse and an attending nurse and an RA. There will be a shift change bringing new nurses, and one will inform you of a woman screaming in the lobby. She says that she is your mother, and your husband will be the one to send her away. When it no longer matters, when you're too far gone from pain and joy and something otherworldly that compels you to push, the actual doctor will arrive. After, you'll wonder how nobody prepared you for the waxy vernix coating your daughter or the sweet smell of her, a smell you cannot reconcile with inside of the human body. Your husband will not wrap the placenta, still warm in an animal skin, and sacrifice, a, sacrifice it to the wild as the Chinook Eskimo would. Instead, he will spiral the hospital garage in search of a Honda Civic with a camera forgotten in its glove box. <laughs> you read in a book that your baby would root for your breast, the very act changing your body to food. And now you think how extraordinary it is that we come into this world already starving, our human hunger innate. You will not know how to breastfeed in spite of the books that you have read. In Greece, in China, in France, in the past, the women would have stayed until you found your feet again. You, however, will not know that your great-grandmother soothed her baby's whooping cough with ginger or that your grandmother warmed a finger in clove oil for teething. After 36 hours, you will be discharged into the bright day and into the car, where you will sit in the back seat with your hand resting on your daughter's butterfly heart. Your husband will drive west toward the cemetery, where you will see its grounds as if for the first time, a palimpsest of shaling stone, grass and soil of wood and bone, layer upon layer, invisible beneath the surface because the past has been erased and a new story has been written over top. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two more short ones, very short. This one is called Birthright. Not written in the second person. There is a little girl and she is told that she looks like her dead grandmother. This little girl does not know how to pray, for her mother does not believe in God, and so the girl sends wishes into the night sky instead, 
for things that she thinks her grandmother might like. May the Colts lose, she wishes, because she has heard that her grandmother liked football and was loyal, always loyal, to the Baltimore Colts, her hometown team, and never to the Indianapolis Colts, because loyalty meant fidelity to place. May the dictionary grow ever fatter, she wishes, for she has learned that her grandmother loved Scrabble and knew exotic words like cat and zoo. Her grandmother will need more of these words as she draws tiles for a never-ending game in eternity. Eternity, it should be noted, is not heaven. Heaven does not exist, just as God does not exist. For if God is real, the girl's mother explains, then he is a wicked and cruel God for infecting swimming pools with polio in the 1950s. The girl's mother does not believe in resurrection either, so she does not see the gift in her own recovery long ago in Dr. Salk and his bitter pink inoculation that reanimated her limbs. Her mother does not see God in that vaccine. This little girl cannot believe in God, but she does believe in ghosts because she reads Nancy Drew and she watches Scooby-Doo. She believes in ghosts as characters in a plot who will be debunked in the end when masks are lifted and there underneath exists a real person with motives and a face that is wrinkled and fleshy, naked and exposed. On the nights when her grandmother shows up, sitting on the end of the bed, in dreams or in reality, it doesn't really matter because it's always late and dark and dreamlike, the little girl believes she is speaking with a ghost. And since ghosts are real, she is, in point of fact, speaking with her grandmother. One day, the girl's mother visit, is visited by, at home by a witch or a neighbor who drinks Lipton tea and eats chutney cheese on slices of thin bread and who tells the mother that her little girl is an old soul. After, the little girl believes in reincarnation, not in an eternity in the stars or an everlasting peace, but in a room where you go and wait for the living to figure it all out and to finally send your soul to sleep. Her grandmother has a lot to say when she visits at night, but she is silent, no words coming from her moving mouth. And so the girl has to interpret what her grandmother needs, redemption, resolution. It becomes clear that the girl with the strawberry blonde curls, who looks so much like her auburn-haired grandmother, is her grandmother reincarnate. So truthfully, the girl is talking to herself. And what does she have to say? Save me. The little girl sitting straight up in bed cocks her head. From what? From myself. She is here on earth, the little girl now understands, to fix something. And that belief is bolstered every time her father looks at her dew-eyed and says, today you look like my mother. It is then the little girl's job to figure out what has been broken. In this version, original sin is particular to the soul that you inhale and inherit when you first gasp to life outside of the room. Not a universal wickedness, you see, but a specific one, your own unique cross to bear. This sin, which is the little girl's to fix, often whispers to her in the dishwater light of dawn, in the smell of leaves mulching back to earth each fall, in the gloaming at the end of the day. It could be mistaken for nostalgia or melancholy or the blues, but she understands it for what it truly is, inheritance. All right. And this last one is really super short, and I'm reading it because Mike 
<laughs> so um, this one's really super short, totally different feeling. And I just want to put you in mind, a couple years ago, I had to read at the Baltimore Book Festival, and I forgot my reading. Like, I left the thing I printed out at home. And you know, if you've been, this was when I was in Mount Vernon, and it was really crowded, and there was no way I could get back in time, because it's like, I couldn't park and get back, and I'm parked. So Matt's like, oh, you have this one story. My husband, he's like, it's on your phone. You can just read it. So it's like 10 a.m. on a Sunday, and I'm reading this, sto- this story in front of a lot of families. So just keep that in mind as I read the story. Um, <laughs> This one is called The Dirty Canoe, and it's very short. (laughs) Right? If it hadn't been for the ferret attack, we never would have gotten busted. This was supposed to be a real easy in-and-out kind of thing, and the day had started off fine enough. We left Carson City at 6 a.m. and made good time, so when we reached Pahrump, I begged Pete to stop at the Golden Nugget for a few pops, but he just floored it. Banjo, he said... Smoke a cigarette and shut it. We've got a whorehouse to get to. Later, the police would say that Pete had a gun at the cash register, but they got it all wrong. There was no gun. It was a wrench, which begs the question I know. You held up a whorehouse with a wrench? A hex wrench, to be exact, for putting together furniture. Pete still had it in his pocket after setting up the apartment for him and Sonia, but we weren't trying to rob anyone with it. I mean, what idiot would try to take a till with a hand tool? We'd gone to the chicken ranch to collect Pete's wife. She'd taken up residence there while Pete finished a nickel for possession with intent. Pete says Sonia got brainwashed or kidnapped, but you know what I think? I think she got smart. Those girls don't pay rent, they don't cook, they don't do laundry, they just work the good gifts God gave them and they make bank doing it. And Sonia's always been real smart with money like that. The plan was for the two of us to walk in all casual and for me to occupy the madam while Pete checked out the place. I guess I got distracted looking at the menu of services and never saw Pete go back through that door marked private. You see, they got this one thing. It's called a dirty canoe. It'll run you like two fifty with tip, but it's got two gals. One's hanging from a portable rig and the other one's underneath and... Well, shit, that's a story for another day. So next thing I know, Pete's back, and he's got Sonia, and she's looking pissed. And the madam starts yelling, and she reaches behind her desk, and hand to God, hurls this goddamn rodent across the room. And it's all cujoed up and hissing and shit, and that fucker sinks its fangs right into Pete's arm. (laughs) Now I've been through rabies shots once. Never again. I hightailed it out of there like I was escaping a burning fucking building. So sure... I wasn't there when the rest went down, but here's what I can't square with what the police are saying. A man goes to all that trouble to run a nice place. He buys a new couch, and he bloodies his finger putting together a dresser that he fills with new clothes. And then he drives seven hours just to try and kill his wife and hold up a joint? It doesn't add up. I'm telling you, whatever happened in there had something to do with that rabbit fucking ferret. Spirit. <laughs> I 
first truck was a Chevy, my next truck will be a Ford. When I turned that Chevy upside down, I had the pedal floor. I was kicking out across the gravel, and she got away from me. My first truck was a Chevy, and I wrapped her around a tree. Kicking it down on the red dirt road, the sun is hot and the air is cold. Got nowhere that I need to be, the sky is blue far as I can see. Nothing on the radio, so I say, woman I love wears a wedding ring. Well, I crawled out of the wreckage, and I lay there in the dirt. I could never run again and my whole body hurt. I passed out in the sunlight and I woke to the ambulance door. I love that Chevy like a good old friend, but my next truck was gonna be a Ford. Kicking it down on a red dirt road, the sun is hot and the air is cold. Got nowhere that I need to be, the sky is blue far as I can see. Nothing on the radio, so I Open that can 
hand Make a fist but I suck it down In the cool air of the evergreen tree Cancer left me Cancer the right No, I can't get away from these cans Cans in my bloodstream Cans in both of my hands No, I can't get away from these cans Back in high school, we built a pyramid out of them. We built it up just to knock it down. Well, that was a long time. It's fun, I never really think about that much. But well, it seems like I built things up just to knock them down. Cancel the left of me Cancel the right No, I can't Get away From these cans Cans in my bloodstream Cans in both of my Some may think that February is merciful because it is short. This is not true. Because there is less of February, each day is more potent. February punches in the face. A flat, gray, dull light permeates the day's black tree stalks haunt its nights. If there was a month you could skip, February is your best candidate. None of the festivities of December nor the hope of January and colder than both. Let's put this to bed right now. February is a shitty month. Daniel Barino was at work. He didn't want to be. Not that he didn't want work, he just didn't want to be there at that work anymore. So sometimes he would stare out the window and watch February slowly run its course. Cars flew along the highway outside, the parking lot, the barren trees, the piles of salt on the road. It all built up a pressure in his chest, and he sighed. Did you just sigh again? Coworker in the office over. Could you hear it from the other room? Yes, 
I can hear your sighs. Please keep them down. They're making me want to kill myself. Daniel nodded. His personal phone buzzed, an old-timey looking thing that flipped open and whose screen you couldn't touch unless you wanted to rub off the face grease that would occasionally accumulate there. It buzzed a text from an unknown number. It said, I'm interested, but since I'm on SSRIs, it may not work. Really? said Daniel. The phone did not answer. Even a fancier one wouldn't answer a random verbal tick like that. This is about some kind of drug, he thought. Of course it was. SSRIs are drugs. But what is this person interested in? Sex? Psychedelics? Daniel scratched his three days grown cheeks. It was a 312 number. A quick search found this was Chicago. His sister-in-law lived in Chicago. Otherwise, he didn't know anyone there. Using his alphanumeric prowess, he texted back, Who is this? There was no buzz back, so Daniel found some work to do. Because time is a conspiracy, it sneaked slowly on. After a few difficult conversations and some that were simply annoying, Daniel prepared to leave. The phone buzzed. The text read, Who are you? I am Marcus Azul. Daniel looked at the phone. Marcus Blue. Who are you, Mr. Blue? A quick lookup on Marcus Azul and Chicago found a lawyer he'd never met. Daniel called his wife. Who's Marcus Azul? What? Do you know a Marcus Azul? Does your sister know him? I don't know. Never heard the name. Okay. You coming home soon? Sure. Are you all right? Same as ever. I'll make some food and see you soon, she said. Okay. He closed the phone and went back to the computer screen. Mr. Blue, who are you? The computer didn't answer. Even a fancy one wouldn't have known what to make of such a random, meaningless question when whispered out into the slowly darkening February night. Hello, honey. I'm real tired. Yes, of course, she said. The juice had been squeezed from the day. The light was purple streaks in a sky-threatening snow, but it just wouldn't snow. The phone buzzed. It was the 312 number. You aren't Mark or Egg. Who are you? She saw him shake his head. Who is it? Exactly, he said. She was cooking something with rice. Oh, no, that was pasta. Looks good. I think I made something disgusting, she said. He went to her and hugged her from behind. Why would you make something disgusting? That doesn't make any sense. It smelled fine. It smelled good, even. This smells great, he said. No, I fucked it up. He tasted it. It's fine. Just fine? Is this a trap, he said. The text, she asked. It's Marcus Blue. I mean, Azul. I love the word Azul, she said. He nodded and looked at the text again. Indeed. They ate dinner in front of the television. I know we're not supposed to, but we're grown-ups now. We need distraction. Don't fight it, she said. They settled in. A hand banged the door. She looked out the window. 
It's Laurel. He went downstairs to find a six-year-old black girl, beaming a smile brighter than March and April sun all bundled together. He opened the door. Where are your parents? She shrugged and laughed, the strange hard laugh of a six-year-old. The laugh said he should know it was funny and that he should be laughing harder than her. No, really, Laurel. Where are they? Do they know you're here? Yes. She made short, small shakes of her head while rolling her eyes up in a full statement of, duh. He looked behind her and down the stairs. Do you need something? I need to play soccer. I see. That's what your mom and dad are for. They think you're pretty good. She laughed again, like she was on a TV show about laughter. I'm meeting dinner, he said. I already ate. She shrugged and giggled. He could see her bright yellow soccer ball on the porch behind her. Honey, he called up. I'll be five minutes. By his car, the street was both flat and lit by a streetlight. They kicked the ball back and forth for a while. You have to dribble before you kick, he said. But I just want to kick it. She screeched and laughed, then kicked the ball all the way into the woods. She started running toward the woods. Wait, kiddo. He ran past her and stood in her way. But I want to get it. I'll get it. You stay here, okay? She pumped her legs and pouted. He pushed through the bamboo and brambles. It was damp, having rained the day before. Orange streetlight cut up the darkness unevenly and in strange patterns. He tripped over something and fell. It was a blue bicycle. Both wheels had been removed. The chain dangled limply. He scraped wet leaves off the top tube and saw the word mark. A blue mark. He moved enough leaves to see it. It said, Mark Three. Little hooks cleaved into his ribcage below his heart. Do you see the ball? She jumped up and down. I'll, I'll find it. He dug through the brush but couldn't find the ball. He dragged the bicycle carcass out. That is not my ball. It doesn't look anything like my ball. She opened her palms toward the sky and shook them in an exaggerated gesture like an old man. I know. We'll find it tomorrow, okay? You come back. We'll find it. Deal? But, but I want to play soccer. As the tears filled her eyes, he looked around and realized that he was the only person who was going to deal with this, unless, of course, he took her home. Let's go home. She started crying. To her mother, he said, I promise tomorrow I will find that ball. It's dark out there, but her foot is strong. She thanked him. The food is cold. I'm sure it's fine, he said, sitting down next to her. I think I made something disgusting. I think we went over this already. He ate. I found something out in the woods, she nodded. It was a blue bike, a blue Mark III, like Mark Blue, like Marcus Azul. And his area code begins with a three. This was a Mark III. She stopped with the fork in her mouth. She pulled it out slowly and jutted her chin out. Is this a joke? No, weird, right? I get these texts, then I find this bike. Weird. The only thing weird here, honey, is you. That bike, some bike in the woods, who cares about that? We find trash bikes in the woods all the time. You know that, right? He went back to eating. Okay. He shrugged, but his heart wasn't even in the shrug. Sure, forget it. Are you 
okay. Um, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah, forget it, she said. She took a deep breath. It was so deep, he didn't know what to say in return. It was the show with the desperate people doing crazy things. It was popular, but also made people feel smart to watch it. In the scene they were watching, the main characters walked by a building that had a blue streak of paint on its otherwise blank wall. Look, another blue mark. This isn't funny, he shrugged. I know that. There was a whiteboard in their living room where he wrote down exercise routines. He pointed to a streak of dry erase marker, another one, a blue mark. She shook her head, a curious shake. Her face pursed. Stop. On the wall, there was a poster of a clown he'd pulled from a dumpster many years before. The painter had added flourishes of color, but honey, look, there, a blue mark. I'm asking you to stop because I'm not sure what makes this okay for you. It's not okay for me, she said. He shrugged again. The show ended. The local news came on, then an ad. It was for a home services company with a blue line for a logo. Honey, I'm just saying, Daniel, enough. The next ad was about an old lady who had to go to the dentist. She wouldn't stop talking. The assistant said she was talking a blue streak. I'm not doing this, honey, he said. It's real. Her voice was getting higher. Yes, it's real. No, it doesn't mean anything. His voice went to her volume and then the next notch up. It does. It does. It absolutely does. Daniel, what does it mean? What exactly does it mean? He stood. He turned to her. It means things make sense. It means things are connected. He was not talking, but now he was actually yelling. You don't understand. I don't know why you don't, but you don't. The connections are clear. Please calm down, honey. I am calm. I see. I see that something out here is clicking. Something out here is trying to... There's a reason. He went downstairs to the front door. She heard him say something about reasons, alignments. She followed him down. He was outside. He was coming back toward the house with the skeleton of the blue bike. Daniel, I got it. Please just... Don't bring that in here, okay? I got it. Do you understand, he said, holding the blue bike. A blue Mark three, three one two. Marcus Azul, do you understand? A fire, a heat passed through her chest. Then it was a coldness, not from outside, from inside. Slowly, she nodded. Yes, I see, I do. Let's, let's finish dinner, then we'll go to bed. He nodded, he put the frame down, he came inside and went back upstairs. They ate dinner and watched TV, but for a series of tinny voices pushing from the speakers, the room was quiet. She went to bed, he went into his office. He stared at the computer screen for a long time. She came looking for him. Honey, come to bed, I will. Yes, I know you will. I mean now. She walked up behind him. He tried to close the computer window. Her face went sour. What are you doing? Nothing. She turned his machine. You are Googling Marcus Azul. Yes, I am, he said. She put her fingers on her forehead and yawned. 
why, why are you doing this? There are several Marcus Azuls, several, but not many. It is a unique name. Honey, she put her hands on his face and turned his face to hers. Did you apply for any jobs? Did you check the website with the listings? Did you work on the resume? One is a lawyer in Chicago. I've seen his picture. I think he's married. Why is this guy texting me? It doesn't matter. She bit her lip, stopping herself from crying. Will you come to bed now, please? Her eyes were light and glassy. They pleaded. He fidgeted with his wedding ring, turned to the computer and closed it. They went to bed. Except for the whir of the noisemaker he used to fall asleep, no other sound was heard. Somewhere in the cold nose of the February night, she rolled over. Are you even sleeping? I mean, I'm doing something, he said. But you aren't sleeping. It was dark, but not pitch dark. Moon glow caught the snow on the ground, and it made purplish light that crept in around the curtains. Honey, it doesn't help to talk about it. You mean to talk about the not sleeping? Precisely, he said. She rolled to him, came up on her elbow, and kissed his eyeball. I'm sorry, sorry, I was going for your cheek. I appreciate it either way. She rolled back and found a sleep position. Good night, she said. Of course. There are certain tasks at work that even if he dug that job, he still wouldn't like. And now that he was ready to ghost, he hated Today, this involved waiting rooms from which he eventually went to a room he didn't even want to be in. And then it lasted for like two hours. When it was over, he was alone for a minute. He called a former colleague on his phone, a woman who he thought might have a lead on jobs. Every time he thought of leaving his job, it felt like he was in free fall, like he was in an endless narrow canyon and he was falling and it was never going to stop. I've changed jobs before, said his rational mind. I'm still falling, said the rest of him. She didn't pick up her cell. He left the message. Hi, Geraldine. How are you? He told her machine that he was looking at his career options. How about lunch tomorrow? Let me know. He hung up and as a joke said to himself, so we can have sex. He laughed like a ninth grader. He wasn't attracted to Geraldine. He saw her as a kindly aunt, an aunt he decidedly did not want to fuck. He looked at his phone and realized it was having some kind of glitch and hadn't hung up properly. A bead of sweat formed at his hairline. He worked the touch screen and quit the phone app and did three other things and finally got the phone to tell him the call was ended. A second bead of sweat had formed. An older man popped his head into the room. We'll be coming in in about five minutes. He nodded and smiled. What was the exact volume of my voice? A text came in. It's Geraldine, he said aloud. He felt his freefall, his unavoidable firing, as he knew he would either soon say something too honest and be fired, or he would be treated with enough disdain that he had to quit, and now, by being all weird on a message with a person who could have a lead on a job, his endless freefall had somehow become even more certain and even more endless. But it wasn't Geraldine. It was Marcus Azul. He read the text... It was well-structured, complicated, and generally incomprehensible for lack of context. Then another came in. I was always afraid to try, but also so curious. What could happen? Aren't I strong enough? He read it twice. The phone buzzed again. 
I would rather crumple in the real pressure of it all than collapse from something that isn't even there, but you know what I mean. Looking at the texts, he remembered the Geraldine problem. Daniel called his work phone from his personal phone. When the voicemail toned, he said, so we can have sex, three inches from the phone, then, so we can have sex, six inches, and slightly quieter, then, so we can have sex, at about a foot away from the phone, and finally he said, so we can have sex, quite loudly, about a foot and a half from the device. That same man popped his head into the room. He smiled an eyeless smile. We'll be needing the room now. Daniel nodded and left. He checked his own voicemail. He could barely hear himself saying the repeated phrase. Maybe the last time when it was loud, but he hadn't said it that loud, and who knows? A third beat of sweat formed. He wiped it away and went back to the office. One thing that February does have is Valentine's Day. And if you're busy worrying about free-falling down an endless narrow canyon while also barely looking for a job that would serve as some kind of rope to stop the fall, you might forget to buy something for your wife. Even if you thought about the whole thing enough to have told someone else to get something for their wife at the very store you had not managed to get to. So Valentine's Day came in possession of no gifts. Daniel played pickup basketball most Saturdays, and he went and played as usual, He brought his wallet with the idea to get a gift after the game, but he ended up such a sweaty mess that he felt bad going to a store and smelling like an ape. He went home, where he found his wife in the shower. They, together, enjoyed making him smell like a clean human again. They were supposed to go to dinner. He bit his lip and said, I have to go see Mike. They were still naked. She was rosy red from the hot water and the etc., Why do you need to see Mike? He wasn't a good liar. Most of his lies were internal. They involved him telling himself that things were worse than they actually were. For example, he would say, You are at risk of free-falling down an endless canyon forever because it is literally impossible to find another job. That wasn't possibly true. He also said, It might be easier to kill myself than to find another job. That was technically true, but besides the point. Finality is easy. Continuance is hard. Since that was an apples-to-oranges comparison, it was a lie. He didn't need to see Mike, so he said, I need to talk to him about business stuff. Is he okay? Mike was fine. He's, you know, bummed. Mike wasn't bummed. She let up. She trusted him. He drove in a rapidly developing snowstorm to a grocery store where he parked illegally and bought flowers, then drove to the very store he advised a co-worker to go to down by the water. It was full of knickknacks and jewelry from Africa and Asia. He quickly picked something out and motored home. It was a bracelet made by the Touareg people. It was silver with geometric designs. It was pretty. He returned. She was still unclothed. I, I didn't have to see Mike. He presented flowers and gift, all well-received. I thought I was being romantic, not telling the truth. Now I think it might have just been deceptive. She loved the bracelet. She arranged the flowers in a vase. She put on the bracelet. It doesn't fit quite right. He took a look. Her wrist was small. He tried to bend it to make it fit. Be careful, you'll break it. They got it to fit and went out to dinner. Overnight, the temperature dropped into single digits. The pipe to their bathroom froze. They weren't sure if it was a broken pipe or just a frozen pipe. It was a bummer morning. 
His phone buzzed. Marcus Azul texted, I can't believe how the snow looks. It was a group text. Daniel replied, a pipe froze. Marcus Azul quickly texted back, who is this? Daniel considered the frozen pipe, the snow, the canyon, the free fall. He fidgeted with the new bracelet. He worked it to make it fit better. It broke in his hand. Self-directed fury flamed hot. He texted Marcus Azul, I broke the bracelet. There was no response. They couldn't run both the space heater and the heater thawing the pipes. He considered wearing a hat to bed. Somewhere in that hatless February night, she rolled over. Are you even sleeping? I'm not going to lie to you. Honey, you have to sleep. It doesn't help. What doesn't help? Sleeping? He took a deep breath. No. Oh, you mean talking about sleeping? Yes. She rolled over and kissed him on the nose, then rolled back to her side. I meant to, uh, I was, uh, it's appreciated, really, it is. She grew quiet, and soon her breathing was regular, deep. He could hear the frustration in Gina's voice on the phone. I sent you, like, four job listings to your email. Did you apply? Yes, he whispered. I saw them. He was at work. He thought they all knew, that they knew he was leaving, that he was abandoning them, and that hence he was disloyal. Okay, well, did you apply? He smiled as his boss passed. He went into his office. No, not yet. It had become normal. He saw his boss. He pictured the steps, the steep metal steps. Well, what are you waiting for? I don't know, he said. He looked out the window. Six years he'd been there. In six more years, he would be 44, and six years later, 50. It's like I'm 50 already. What did you just say, said his wife? Nothing. He watched the traffic. You're 30 fucking eight, okay? Please don't forget that, honey. He saw the top of the stairs, and he saw where he had, in his mind, not really accidentally broken a bottle of olive oil. The metal steps were slick and shiny. Honey, she said. He scanned his computer screen. It was open to a business networking profile. Marcus Azul is only 31. Jesus, she said. That's not your Jesus, honey. They were, in fact, Jews. Please listen to me. Her voice was angular. In his mind, he said, come on, boss. Let's go downstairs. His boss was standing at the top of the stairs, already in the oil slick. He breathed in through his nose while he pushed his upper lip to partly cover his nostrils. This warmed his mustache. Are you listening, she asked. Traffic continued trafficking. There was a slow but steady movement of the sun across the sky. He fell and fell and fell. I'm listening. And just like that, he would slip forward. He would slip forward in the oil and fall into his boss. His boss had 14 steps to cover after that first one. Please pull it together, she said. He laughed. That, that's your message. We made a deal when we got married, and I'm here for you. And being here for you right now means saying, get it together. Could someone survive a fall down 14 steps? 
At the very least, he'd be out for a while. And maybe he'd be out for good. Maybe Daniel wouldn't have to leave after all. He could save the day. He looked back at his computer. One of the several Marcus Azuls looked back at him. This one wore glasses and a suit. He looked surprised, not surprised that his picture was being taken. This particular Marcus Azul had gone to Harvard Law. Bet he's got it made. What? I will get it together. I promise, he said. Okay, good. I'll see you later. I love you. She hung up. He drove home in the dark and found her there already. Honey, I have this pain in my chest. Well, more like down here by my spleen. He touched the bottom of his ribcage and tried to breathe deeply. Am I having a heart attack? Probably not. He stood in the kitchen and felt himself standing in the kitchen. Then he felt himself feeling himself standing in the kitchen. Then he was even farther away. He knew what he was about to say. Then he saw himself saying it. It got bothersome and slow. It's all happening too slowly, and I don't like it. It's okay. She smiled and walked to him. Take deep breaths. I'm trying. He tried. She went back to her work. He wandered upstairs and called his mother. Is there a pain shooting down your arm? He checked his arm. There was no pain. No. You could go to the hospital and check. He considered that. The drive, the waiting room, the paperwork, the sheer unending ugh of it all. No. He let out a long breath. I'm not going to do that. Well, if your arm starts to hurt, you have to do it. He nodded but did not speak. What were you doing when this started? He cleared his throat and coughed. Oh, you sound sick, she said. He wasn't sick. I was, I was thinking about looking at job listings. That's great. Have you applied to any? He tried to shake off the feeling of being underwater or being inside of a vat of some kind of clear gel, but he couldn't. What? Have you applied for any jobs? His heart beat slow and ominously, like it was preparing to stop. I have to go, Mom. Remember the arm thing? He walked to his computer and looked at jobs. They all looked better than his. Better meaning exclusively one thing. Different. He couldn't focus. He walked away. It was Sunday night, and he had trouble concentrating because when he thought about going back to work, all he could think about was not wanting to go back to work. The bad feeling at the base of his ribcage had become stuck in place, like a new organ whose only job was to emit bad feelings. He read an article about magic mushrooms. He always hated that name, though it was a rather apt description. They look like regular old mushrooms, but they do crazy things. In some ways, you could say they were magic. It was an article in a fancy magazine about research being done on these mushrooms, he read the magazine where he normally did, on the toilet. He read about people eating magic mushrooms to get over their fear of death, their fear of change and pain. Maybe it's time for me to try it again. One of the scientists said, children are basically tripping all the time. Daniel thought of Laurel, her arms raised in victory. He continued, the conscious mind is a reducing valve. This was familiar. 
And finally, a steep price is paid for the achievement of order and ego in the adult. The sovereign ego can become a despot. This is perhaps most evident in depression. He'd read that line before. No shit. He stood up, pants around his ankles, and walked to his phone. He flipped it open and found Marcus Azul's last set of texts. They were quotes from the article. Daniel texted, I'm reading about the mushrooms too. He went back to the toilet and reread the quotes. Honey, he called. What, she said. He thought about what pulling it together meant. It probably meant the opposite of pulling things apart. Nothing, he said. Okay. Somewhere in the snow-filled February night, in a February that for all its brevity seemed to never want to end, he got so tired of being tired that he just got out of bed. She was breathing slow and steady. It was cold, cold like the shelters found extra beds, cold like you should bring in your pets. He opened the door and walked out. He wasn't wearing shoes. Into the street he walked, the streetlight frigidly casting an orange paw. His feet were already numb. The wind blew. If I just fell asleep over in the woods where I found the bike, if I just lay down and sleep, will I wake up at all? He shook his head. Something is wrong with me, and it's not just my job. Arms crossed, he looked up into a clear black sky with stars bright and the moon white and mean. His chest twitched in a shiver. Go back inside, he said. So he did. He opened his phone and reread the text from Marcus Azul. Then he dialed the number. Um, hello? Hi there. Who, who is this? This is Daniel Barino. The guy in the texts, said the groggy voice. Yes. Daniel projected possibility, not just awkwardness. Why are you calling me? I just almost, I thought about sleeping outside. He shook his head, the words not clicking. Right, said Marcus Azul. But why are you calling me? Don't you know people? I have to find another job. Uh-huh. And have you looked for a new job? Not really. Why not? My wife has sent me some stuff. I just, I don't know. It seems easier to maybe be dead than to find a new job. Marcus took a deep breath. Easier, yes, but so what? Good point. It just seems overwhelming, like if I don't have a job, I will immediately lose my house. It sounds like you're in a shitty place. Do you have someone to call? My wife is upstairs, said Daniel. Maybe you should go to bed. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Daniel could hear teeth being sucked on the other side of the cell towers. Does the SSRI help you? Marcus let out a deep breath. 
We don't know each other, man. Silence. Then finally, yes. Yes, it helps. Maybe you should talk to someone, meaning someone other than me. What does it do, the, the SSRI, asked Daniel. He heard a deep inhalation then. It gives me just a little bit of space between my feelings and myself, okay? A little bit of space. I'm going to hang up now. Daniel nodded. A little space sounds awesome. Marcus answered by hanging up. Daniel sat on the sofa and deleted the texts from Marcus Azul. Inside him, in the place that was dark and falling, he could feel one millionth of one millionth of a tiny fraction of a millimeter of space open up. Rubbing his eyes gritty with tiredness, he walked back outside, picked up the bicycle frame by the porch stairs, carried it to the edge of the woods, and threw it. It made a soft sound when it landed on the overgrown bamboo. Somewhere deep in the purple of the early winter morning, she rolled over. Are you even sleeping over there? There was no answer except a slight whistle when he breathed out through his nose. The room was dry and the February night was cold. coming. There's food. Sarth is going to be playing uh, a drone set, which people can focus on to the extent that they are capable. Find a goldfish if you can. Um, please make sure that you uh, just really, I want to thank you all for coming. And uh, I want to thank uh, Michelle and Elizabeth and Mike. Um, Elizabeth actually also gave me notes on this story, um, which were all taken, I think every single one. So, um, <laughs> just, uh, Emily's work is over here, weird canvases, Mike is sitting right there, um, and, uh, I just want to thank you all again for coming, and let's have a beautiful spring.
I want to thank you again for listening to the Fiction is First podcast. Um, there are hopefully some new episodes coming soon. And look for a house show in the fall of 2016. And again, tell your friends, let them know if you enjoyed it. Take care.